You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security podcast. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette, another one of your moderators. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news and provide critical baseline information about issues for new lawyers and lawyers that have been practicing national security law for years. And I'm Elisa, another one of your moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference in November, November 16th and 17th, to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen on these issues tomorrow. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. But never boring, unless you have an itty-bitty little span of attention. You know there are people like that, you know. (laughs) Lots of them. (laughs) But they're not our listeners, Yvette. They're ready to go a little more in depth. So during the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topic on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABANATSEC. We welcome your feedback. Okay, today we continue our series on private national security law with a discussion about, mostly about representing intelligence agents and employees, uh, as well as a FOIA practice with someone who kind of owns this space right now in private national security law. And that is Mr. Mark Zaid. Mark, thanks for coming. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. I'm going to try not to cry for being so happy to be here, especially <laughs> because I don't want the CIA to see I'm emotionally vulnerable. Yeah, you know, they look for that kind of thing. Then, then they have an end. All right, so let me give our listeners a little background on you. So you went to the University of Rochester and the Albany Law School. And you're now on the Board of Trustees at the Albany Law School of Union University in New York. You're the founder and executive director of the James Madison Project, an organization dedicated to educating the public on intelligence gathering and operations, secrecy and national security, um, which is something we love doing here as well. And uh, you teach national security at Johns Hopkins University in the Global Security Studies Program. You've also testified before a lot of august bodies, including the Senate Judiciary Committee, the Senate Committee on uh, Governmental Affairs, um, the House Judiciary Committee, the House Government Operations Committee, the Department of Energy, and the Public Interest Declassification Board, hmm, you have to explain that later, and here my favorite, the Assassination Records Review Board. Uh, hey, and for our listeners, there was or is going to be another big dump of JFK uh, files. October. October, right, required by statute, if I recall. Yes. All right, but your main practice area is administrative and litigation matters that relate to national security, international law, 
foreign and diplomatic immunity, defamation, and freedom of information and privacy acts. So uh, let's break that down and give context to the real world. What that means, I guess, is that you're representing federal employees or former employees, defense contractors, what we think of as whistleblowers, and members of the media and other folks who have been wronged or are being investigated by the U.S. or foreign governments. And apparently you're pretty good at it because you've been recognized by the Washingtonian magazine. Hey, I'd like to be recognized by the Washingtonian magazine for your national security practice. In fact, they called you a D.C. super lawyer. Do you have a shirt for that with the S? sir? underoos. So, and I understand you taught CLE classes for the DC Bar on FOIA, and you're on the Freedom of Information Act Advisory Committee. I just pause. So, what a unique and interesting thing you do. Totally different. Yes, it is. It's all about having fun and trying to do the right thing, and it gives me pickup lines in bars because I can tell women that I represent spies. (laughs) It's true. Well, that is really cool. I think we're just a couple blocks from the International Spy Museum, so you can uh, walk them through there, too. There you go. So um, you work with a lot of different kinds of clients. Can you uh, talk to us about you know some of that representation? It's not really the kind of Perry Mason, you know, Judge Judy kind of thing that you might see on TV. No, it's very different. I mean, many of my clients, in fact, I couldn't even tell you who they are because to reveal their names and their affiliations with their agency would be against the law because they're covert case officers for the CIA or the Defense Intelligence Agency. When it comes down to it, I mean, it sounds really sexy when I first was telling my malpractice insurance companies. uh, At one point, I was actually denied malpractice insurance because they didn't understand what I meant by national security law. And so they they kind of freaked out. So I had to switch it to, I'm just an employment lawyer, which is not nearly as exciting. But Mm -hmm. the employment law is to represent these covert intelligence and over intelligence officers that work throughout the U.S. government as well as law enforcement and other employees. I mean, they could work at the Department of Agriculture and no offense to them, but that's just not as exciting, except for maybe the, the botanical terrorism, uh, food terrorism issues that come into play. Uh, and when they are in trouble or if they're whistleblowers, but if they're in trouble, usually with their security clearances, an Espionage Act investigation, regular employment, they could get pulled over for a DUI, or they could have a performance issue. And it makes it fascinating because for me to understand from an employment standpoint what their issue is, I have to know what they're engaged in doing somewhere in the world, which their agency oftentimes has no interest in letting me know about. Then there's also work for journalists, a lot of Freedom of Information Act litigation for journalists uh, as well. All right, so we, we talk about these security clearance cases. These things are basically when an agency either downgrades or takes away a person's security clearance, that all at once, frankly, they can just lose their income, to be perfectly honest. But I don't really see these cases in U.S. district court. So give us some background on that type of case. Yeah, for clearances, most jobs nowadays in the U.S. government require some level of clearance, or what you might hear as a public trust, which is not a security clearance, but it's a similar creature. It's like a step down, but very similar process for background investigation. If someone is denied or has their clearance revoked, so it could be a secret clearance, a top secret, we hear the acronyms SCI as well, which is Sensitive Compartmented Information. It's just an offshoot of top secret or even secret. If they have a problem with that, and it could be something what you might 
think it would be like, oh, someone's accused of espionage, so they're going to lose their clearance. But most of the time, it's they're having financial problems, they have a DUI, they have foreign relatives, uh, or they're traveling somewhere that's caused some concern. Maybe they have psychological problems, which is, is very often nowadays, uh, sad to say. And then we go through a process. It, it is administrative almost always. It varies from agency to agency as to how it comes about and how private it is. It's almost always really private. But there are some agencies where technically it's an open proceeding, like at the Defense Department. But because the buildings we're usually in, you need some sort of special government ID to get into. It's not really an open proceeding uh, unless we invited somebody to participate. But from a litigation standpoint, what people would normally think of as lawyers fighting against some other side in an adversarial process, that's not the case. We, we do not end up in federal court unless there is some real significant administrative violation, procedural violation. From a substantive standpoint, the federal courts for the last 30 years have literally said that they're not smart enough. They don't have enough common sense, is the terminology actually, common sense to adjudicate an administrative executive branch security clearance determination. So, so that we was, never was get there. Department of the Navy versus Egan, Egan right? In 1988, the Supreme Court. Now, you know, this doesn't seem like something that would be a natural career path with anyone, but in speaking to you, I have found out that, you know, you've basically been channeling that character from the film Slackers who hung out in the stacks uh, waiting for the women to come in, you know, and when they did, he would say, hey, 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 here, are you interested in the JFK assassination? This book's really good because it talks about the trajectories. So, um, was that you? I you like that? I'm not sure I talked about it in that way. I'm not sure I used <laughs> that as a pickup line. Uh, but that is, in many ways, how I came into what I'm doing. There were sort of two paths. One was about Pan Am 103 Lockerbie, the bombing in 1988. And when I represented the families against the government of Libya and started the lawsuit against Libya, which ultimately settled for $2.7 billion. That might be better for women to know about than the JFK assassination, <laughs> although I don't have all that money. Uh, but from the Kennedy assassination, I, I used to do a ton of public speaking and writing and television interviews and radio interviews on the assassination uh, as just a researcher. And my views have changed a lot over the years, as many of us usually do as we become more experienced in life. But I started to represent and meet at conferences people who worked in the U.S. government who were intelligence agents and officers. And the, the, the connection had nothing to do with that they were there for work. They were there because they had their own interest in the assassination, and they'd be at the conference. Hobbyists, JFK yeah. hobbyists. And then I got hired by this one fellow at the Defense Intelligence Agency who, for like 10 years after that, refer, he was senior uh, officer there. He would refer everybody who had a problem at DIA to me. And so that was a great introduction. And one of the things I started doing in the very beginning when I was going after the intelligence community to keep them honest, because I love the intelligence community. I'm all in favor of these agencies. I just like accountability. When I would sue them, I would make sure we would get high-profile mention in Washington Post, New York Times, NPR, because that would embarrass the heck out of the agencies and usually facilitate a settlement far more easily than anything I do in litigation. And that all just snowballed, and you know, more people saw what I was doing and would contact me to represent them. I know you recently published a letter to the editor in the case involving a leaker. Can you uh, talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I had an, an op-ed in the Washington Post about Reality Winner, who is the 
alleged leaker of classified information, defense contractor out of Atlanta, who uh, allegedly gave to The Intercept an online publication that was an NSA document that indicated that uh, the Russians had hacked into or tried to hack into voting machines during the 2016 election. And so she is now being prosecuted under the Espionage Act, which is 100 years old. It has a component for real spies, like everybody would think of it, but it also deals with any type of classified leaks and goes after the leakers. And there's been a number of cases in the last decade. So uh, the article that I wrote was basically, one, making a distinction between that not every leaker is a whistleblower, and that, frankly, reality winner, based on the facts as we know it, is not a whistleblower, because there wasn't any disclosure of waste, fraud, abuse, unlawful conduct. It was a policy issue that she allegedly was concerned about and wanted people to know about. And that's well and good, but I don't, frankly, need a 25-year-old deciding policy for the United States government. And there were other ways in which she or anyone could go about getting information like that, maybe not to the public right away, but through two proper channels, if they felt the information wasn't being properly used in the manner or paid attention to the, the way it should be. Could go to the Inspector General's office, could go to the Hill. There's ways, in fact, I could create legal issues for them to go into federal court, either through the Freedom of Information Act or pre-publication review. So without doing any of that, then she or anyone falls victim to being prosecuted, uh, you know, there's real negative repercussions. And one of the things I was saying in the article and what I've learned in 25 years of working against or with the intelligence community and never for, I'm an outsider, is that people who are outside the community have absolutely no idea how the inside of the community works. And they assume things far too often and they fill in gaps. They don't know, and they usually and often don't understand what the consequences could be from this particular result. I hear all the time, well, did anyone die as a result of that leak? And I'm like, well, okay, I don't know of anyone dying yet, but uh, how quickly do they have to die? Uh, the day after the leak? A week? A month? A year? How about five years from when the leak is? If in five years someone dies as a direct result of the leak, is that a problem for you? Is that leak worth it then? And, you know, usually, frankly, they have no answer for that. This is so a really... We'll post a, sorry, we'll make sure we post a, a hyperlink to that op-ed. This is a really interesting perspective for you because you're the defense attorney, right? So if I am a prospective leaker slash whistleblower, I should come to you for advice. But you feel pretty strongly about how people should go about disclosing information that the government has kept secret. Right, and hopefully I'm not the defense attorney that they've already done it. Like, I would not represent Ed Snowden. I've been very public about that I do not agree with what he did, how he did it, or what he's been doing since. But I would be the advocate or plaintiff's attorney, and in, in depending on the context, for someone like him had he come to me, or reality winner had come to me and said, I know this information, I have it, which raises additional issues if they illegally are in possession. But look, this is what we can do to try and get your message out. And if it gets to a point in time where they've done everything, at least legally or morally, then, you know, look, that's up to them. I can tell them the consequences as a lawyer legally, but I can't obviously uh, assist them with breaking the law. Can we just, I, you know, I, I just want to ask you a question, though. You, you've got a very robust 
FOIA, Freedom of Information Act practice. And I just wonder, who are you doing this on behalf of, uh, for the most part? Are these journalists? Um, who takes an interest in this and who needs advocacy in this area? Sure. I've been doing Freedom of Information Act litigation since literally day one of my law practice, so almost 25 years. And it has, most of the time for journalists or advocacy groups on a particular issue. So I represented Mohammed al-Fayed, the father of Dodi al-Fayed, who died with Princess Diana. And we litigated for three years under FOIA against something like 16 federal agencies trying to get information out about the princess's death. And I would also use FOIA in whatever cases that I have to try and essentially use it as a tool of discovery. Most of my FOIA clients now are journalists, especially with the Trump administration, although I did this actively in Clinton, Bush, Obama, there's no difference, uh, but except that I'm doing a, a lot more pro, uh, pro bono work because a lot of journalists now are more interested in FOIA. So, I mean, I represent USA Today, Politico, Daily Beast, The Daily Caller. So on both sides, political idol. I'm not ideological. I'm not partisan. Uh, I, I represent them all. Uh, but a let's lot bring of- this into the national security framework. The issue in FOIA is that there is an exception, right, for classified information. Yes. Certain, some privileges are going to apply. And so how do, you, how do you sort of manage that in litigation in your practice? Because you know, the, the, whole, the whole idea is intelligence agencies can't protect their sources and methods. This stuff isn't available under FOIA. There's a specific carve-out. So how do, you, how do you manage that? Sure. So the FOIA exemption that applies to national security is what's called B-1 under 552A, uh, then B-1. And uh, it goes by what the executive order is that's governing classification. Uh, and the one that exists now is one that President Obama issued uh, right about when he, not too long after he took office. Uh, it hasn't changed much in the last 25 years, actually. And it sets forth what the criteria is. The executive branch decides it, but by statute, the judiciary can overrule the executive branch. It has, they give them wide deference. If you did case law research, you really wouldn't find too many cases where a judge has overruled outright the executive branch in national security. But that's because when the argument by the executive branch is weak, the judge will make it very clear as we go along in the case, and usually the executive branch agency would release the information, declassify it along the way so that there's no precedent against it for having lost so openly. So when we go after information, there's a lot of different ways. One, once we put it in, the agency may declassify, all or in part at least. And that could give us a lot of information. They also that prompts, it prompts a review. Is that what you're saying? And then suddenly they have to say, "Wow, did these uh, the reason for the classification? Does that still hold?" At multiple levels of review. I mean, it starts out at a fairly low level in the government scale of things. You know, maybe a GS twelve or thirteen. It's a pretty decent level, but there's a lot of people higher, especially as you get into the political aspects of it. And then once we sue, we get the Justice Department lawyers involved and the lawyers in that agency who have a much different view of it. And of course, I plaster the story in the New York Times or the Washington Post or Wall Street Journal, if I can, to put more pressure on it, including from the Hill. And there's also what's called a Vaughn Index, which is a document that agencies will create in order to defend what it is they're withholding. And in that Vaughn Index, they have to give a description of the the documents and the information, if they can. It could be classified even that, but, you know, it could be the number of pages, when the document was written, who was it written by, who was it sent to, and then some sort of summary description. 
And sometimes that document, even though we never get the underlying document we wanted, sometimes that Vaughn index gives us more information than we ever had before. Now, do you find that those things are sometimes com combined that you, in the course of, say, defending somebody in a security clearance matter, then also have to sort of do a FOIA, or those tend to be separate? So you're usually, there's no, is there a formal discovery process through the, the uh, security clearance hearings? So in the security clearance process, that is also set forth by executive order to how that goes, at least what the floor is. And that's an executive order President Clinton issued in 1995 that's still in effect. And the agencies have to give information to the individual whose clearance they're denying or revoking a basis of what we call a statement of reasons, to an explanation. And unless it's classified, which sometimes it is when I have a covert intelligence officer, but I have a clearance, so I get to most times see it, uh, but almost always they can come up with some way to explain what the issue is that gives us enough information to challenge it. It's a problem at times with CIA and DIA being the worst, quite frankly. Most other agencies in the DOD really does the greatest number by just statistical numbers. They, they do a great job of giving everybody information as to what we need. So we usually don't have to go beyond what the issues are and what the government provides us. It happens at times, and again, more times in the, the intel agencies or the operational spy agencies, I'll say. And how important is it, both for your practice and in general, that you as the lawyer have a security clearance as well? So most lawyers, there's not that many lawyers who do this type of work. Uh, those who do, the majority of them do not have security clearances and never have. Some might have had because they could have been a member of the Judge Advocate General uh, or had been a, a, an attorney in the civil side in the U.S. government. My practice is even unique among my peers who do this type of work, particularly because of which agencies I deal with and because I have these covert intelligence officers where I have to have a clearance just by the very nature of where they work. And then every once in a while, I will have a criminal case that I get pulled into, usually to do crisis management or media relations for that uh, case, because I, I don't consider myself a criminal defense attorney. I just play one on television. When you're on the criminal side, it's a lot easier to get processed for a clearance. When you're on the civil side, the administrative employment side, it's, it's much more difficult. I mean, the agency has to consent to give you a clearance and you have to have a need to know. And then we go through the same process that everybody else does. We fill out the SF-86, which is so big in the news because of Jared Kushner and Attorney General Sessions and such. And when we explain what an SF-86 is to our listeners who may not know. Sure, it's a standard Form 86. It's the National Security Questionnaire. If you just Google it, it'll come up at OPM, Office of Personnel Management's website. It's 127 pages. It's a pain in the ass to fill out. Uh, it's, it's not... Well, lawyers might need to know that out yeah. there. This is what you're getting yourself into. So I advise people on how to fill it out, including tons of lawyers who have been coming into this administration who are smart enough to contact me before they fill out the form. And clearance cases in general are all about mitigation. I mean, you could have killed someone and I can get you a security clearance potentially if I can show mitigation. You, you did it when you were 17. It was your mother's boyfriend. Your mother's boyfriend was, was beating up on your mother. You, you, know, you killed him in self-defense, but you got prosecuted. You joined the Marines. You became a, a, a chaplain in the Marines. You did that for 30 years, retired as a colonel. Now you work for the American Red Cross and are doing contracting on the side, and you volunteer at soup kitchens. That's great <laughs> mitigation. I could get you a clearance. It's usually not that good. 
but it's all about mitigation. So I can admit, yeah, you smoked pot six months ago, or yeah, you did get pinched for a DUI three weeks ago, and that's not necessarily in and of itself going to doom you. Well, I love, I'm really enjoying our hypothetical because uh, the young lawyers out there are, going, are getting a window into your thought process and how to think creatively as a lawyer in the service of your client. So thanks so, so much for walking us yeah, through that. And, and actually, much of what I do, even with 25 years of experience, I make it up every single day. Many, many cases I get, there's nothing for me to look up. Uh, I have to just use my anecdotal experiences uh, over the years and who I know and who to talk to and how best to argue this. Uh, there's, there's no real precedence and we're coming up with innovative new ideas constantly in order to defend our clients in the national security field. That's awesome. So obviously we have heard about a lot of leaks lately um, and I think Congress is paying attention to this. The White House is paying attention. Do you see anything coming down the pike? Do you have any sort of thoughts or predictions about changes in the law, changes in regulations, executive orders, things we might anticipate that could inform uh, that kind of your very unique kind of practice? Well, you know, I hope not, actually. There, so the Espionage Act covers leaks, and there's a lot of people who want to change it because, one, they don't like that it applies to leakers or maybe whistleblowers, because it's an espionage act, and it sounds like they should be only going after spies like Aldrich James or Robert Hansen. The fact, and the statute hasn't been amended since 1950 or 51, since the Korean conflict. So it's very outdated, as you can imagine. But the fact is, it's very rarely used. It's broad, but there's been policy decisions to how to use it, how not to use it. Although I'd love to have two statutes, one for real spies, one for leakers, just call it a different name. But if you monkey with it, especially in today's partisan environment, which will not be favorable for, frankly, for leakers or whistleblowers, uh, I think they're going to make it worse. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm really concerned about that uh, because then you open up Pandora's box with, well, how, how is this wording going to be interpreted? Uh, how should this wording be applied? And that's the danger that can come about if you change a new statute or create one or amend a new old one, create a new one. Uh, to open up that, that problem. So what's going on right now is that the administration is looking at new, possibly considering new policies, particularly with respect to journalists and the publication of classified information, because it is illegal to publish classified information and there is no journalistic exception. What exists is a policy not to go after journalists. And I think you will see at some point in time a journalist prosecuted for uh, publishing classified information, but it's likely to be in a fact pattern where they solicited the information. Uh, the Obama administration dealt with this, uh, and they decided they weren't going to modify their policy guidelines to be broader. They actually narrowed it. This administration, you know, we're waiting to see what they do. Well, let me ask you one last question. Now, you've mentioned that you sued uh, the Libyan government. Let's talk about the statute uh, that existed at the time. The Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act made it pretty hard to do that. What changed and what made that possible? Because that was a significant uh, victory. Obviously, that was a wholly gratuitous, horrible terrorist act. Can you just give us a little background on that? Sure. So it's one of my uh, cases that I think the most highly of. Uh, I knew some of the people on the plane. Uh, there were two students a year behind me at University of Rochester who were killed. So that once I went into law school a few months later, that was what was motivating me to go after terrorists, actually. And I was looking at ways in which to go after 
terrorists individually and state actors, which were there were far more of back at that time. And the sovereign statute that governs from 1976 says a state cannot be sued unless one or more exceptions are met. And when I filed the first lawsuit in 1993, a year out of law school, uh, we, we made arguments that we fit within one of the exceptions. We made the big argument that it was a non-commercial tort that uh, you could, Pan Am at the time had a big American flag on the tail and that this was an attack on an America. And just like a ship that the flag state of it gives jurisdiction uh, because of that flag state, we said the same thing with a plane. State Department hated that argument uh, and, the, and the Justice Department opposed us on it. And we ultimately lost in trying to make that argument. But while we were doing the litigation, I rewrote the statute. And I added a new clause that became 1605A7 in the Section 28 that created an exception for terrorist states that were then designated by the State Department, which we had seven of them at that point. Now there's only like three, I think, three or four. And that created or removed the sovereign shield to those states that were on the terrorist list but also had committed uh, specific acts. And the, the key was to change it because every effort before that kept trying to define terrorism. If you committed terrorism, you did that. But one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. And so terrorism was very problematic. So instead, I rewrote it to be if you committed an act of hostage taking or extrajudicial killing or torture or uh, destroying civilian aircraft, all of which were treaty obligations we and almost every country had not to engage in, uh, what we call jus cogens crimes in Latin, uh, crimes that no nation can derogate from undertaking. And that provision was passed and signed into law by President Clinton in April of 96, and the whole case started over again because now Libya lost its entire shield. We litigated a bunch of years and then ultimately settled in 2003, uh, although it took like 15 took a bunch of years to get all the money but yeah, Libya paid congratulations that that was a obviously that was a major victory about something about which you should feel tremendous pride and all the young lawyers out there whose uh, professors admonished them not to rewrite the hypothetical should uh, cite this podcast and uh, Mark Zaid's undertaking to rewrite the statute in his favor yeah if you don't like it the way it is change it <laughs> all right so uh, Mark let's I'd like to give our guests a hypothetical because uh, part of what we're doing here is we're reaching out to the young lawyers. They're facing what appears to them to be a shrinking market, uh, but we're also in uh, tremendously changing times. So let's say I'm a young lawyer. I'm living somewhere in San Francisco, and I'm trying to make a name for myself with a national security practice, and all my buds from college, they have startups, and uh, they're inventing a thing, a cyber thing that'll be used for both intelligence purposes It'll be bought by the government. Maybe it has some private application. The big money is going to come from when they sell it to the government, and that is probably going to mean that they're going to get security clearances, ultimately. Uh, what should I, that imaginary young lawyer, be thinking about, worrying about, considering, and how should I talk to them about the legal concerns they may think are just there to break their stride, their creative stride? So uh, how would you talk to them about sort of the responsibility that comes, potential consequences, everything they should be thinking about with the acquisition of both the sale and the security clearances that they will have to get along with it. So, in fact, I, 
I lecture throughout the year at colleges and law schools to do this exact type of insight. So if anyone is there at a college or a law school wants me to come on by, just let me know. So one of the things you have to do is when you, when you start figuring out not only what have you done in the past to try and take steps to mitigate it uh, and stop it if it's still occurring, but also what do you have up on Facebook? Do you have any photos up? For, first of all, what, what are your privacy settings? Make sure that they, things can't be seen by the public because employers and including the government will go look at what's on, I do it all the time, what's on your Facebook page? Uh, are you, do you have all these photos of you and your friends clearly intoxicated? It looks like you had a fantastic time and that's awesome, but that's not what potential employers want to see. Yeah, that picture of you mainlining heroin into your neck might not go over very well, right? Not gonna work and I have, I've, I've uh, counseled a number <laughs> of young people as I've gone through their Facebook page saying, take that photo down. Do not have that on there. You can also the start- violent, advocating violent overthrow of the government. That's, you know, that and, and that's a, smart. Probably that's a question. Smart. That's a question on the SF-86. Uh, do you advocate uh, the overthrow of the US government? Or do you associate with anybody who does? Which I actually have to say <laughs> yes, because I represented some guy who used to be in Al-Qaeda and wrote a book on it after he helped the CIA uh, in infiltrating and going after uh, one of the Amer Alawaki and, and killing him. But that's mitigating. That's <laughs> very mitigating. Yes. He, won't, he won't get a security clearance. But, you know, things like that uh, you need to really look at to, to make sure. And if you are connected uh, to foreign nationals who, you know, frankly, you don't really have a close relationship with, but, the, you know, there's no need to continue it, you can kind of back away a little bit from that. The key thing is, frankly, is to not to lie on the forms. Uh, or during your investigation or during your polygraph, because that's what captures most people and gets them in trouble. It's actually what they reveal to the U.S. government. The U.S. government rarely, quite frankly, finds out something on its own other than checking your arrest records and checking your credit report and checking your educational transcripts to see if you've lied on anything compared to your form. Pretty much everything that is used against you, you admitted all right, so what advice would you have sort of generally for some of the young lawyers out there? Certainly when you're all in law school, you know, take as many positions and interests as you can to get a sense of what it is that actually might interest you and, and look around at all different levels of government. And if it's national security, obviously in particular, that you're interested in, one, it doesn't have to just be on the government side that you do it, and I'm a prime example of that, never having been in the government and having a damn good time. Uh, with national security. And in fact, I remember interviewing with government positions in the Justice Department. Uh, my goal was by the time I was 30, I was going to work for the U.S. government. And I applied for these jobs inside the Justice Department, all of which required clearances, and were really cool jobs, actually. And at every interview I had, the lawyer on the other side went, you did that case? What? what real? That's so... Why do you want to work here? That's so much cooler than what we're doing. Uh, and I ended up just staying in private practice. But So there's a lot you can do with nonprofits, private practice. But if you want to look at the government, you don't have to just look at what is the most obvious, CIA, FBI, NSA. There's all these other agencies where you can go to. I mentioned one, Department of Agriculture. Who would think? That they have national security cases, but in today's yeah, I'm going with food supply, kind of yeah, important. In today's important. horrific world, yeah, actually, there's some really significant things where they would be involved with counterterrorism and counterintelligence. And while it might not be as sexy as being an attorney in the CIA or the Department of Defense or something like that, 
um, it's a lot easier to get into another agency by laterally transferring over. So go to the Agriculture Department or the Treasury Department, which does tons of terrorism financing and, and espionage cases nowadays, which may be the downfall of President Trump uh, and his people, <laughs> which will probably, if anything, be financial through the Department of Treasury and the Office of Foreign Assets Control and um, other type of uh, agent, Foreign Agents Registration Act in, inside the Justice Department. These are things where most people don't think about, and you have a much better chance of getting a, an internship, if not actual job. And I, in listening to you, I tell you what I really like about uh, listening to your career and all the choices you've made is you might be thinking national security law, not so creative. Absolutely not. You're talking about strategic thinking, uh, doing strategies that are way outside of just your legal practice but are intended to advance your client. Um, it, it sounds like there's really a space out there for people who want to be creative and we really appreciate having you here it's been Absolutely. a pleasure it's uh, i hope pleasure. that you'll come back to us because there may be some changes but uh it's been terrific having you here we're going to continue to watch your career with really great interest thank you i i very much appreciate it i'm always happy to come back and the thing about national security is it's always changing so thank you for listening to the podcast of the standing committee on law and national security tune in again in two weeks for our next episode so right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff where you have no access to the device you're using to listen to us to right now, and you're trying to figure out if you should escape to the private sector where you could get more sunlight exposure and deal with that horrible vitamin D deficiency you're suffering. I have that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you think that a little time in a skiff sounds pretty cool then. But you still want to practice the kind of law that gives you a courtside seat to history. A courtside seat to watch a game you can't talk about with your in-laws. Then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And we hope to see you at our next conference. Remember, the fall conference is November 16th and 17th. Hey, because listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. You have to show up. Show up at one of our breakfasts, lunches, or conferences, and check us out at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity, or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available for purchase on our website. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.